You're listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and supported by the Western Weekender. For three decades, Penrith and the Blue Mountains have turned to the Western Weekender. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. Here is your host, Jonathan Robinson Lees. Annie Burbank resides in the Blue Mountains and is a classically trained pianist. From an early age, Annie has been honing her own eclectic style of playing with influences from the classics, great jazz musicians, and ambient styles. With a worldly experience, Annie continues to share her experiences through her musical education practice and has maintained regular gigs at iconic local venues. Despite her humble nature, Annie still has grand ambitions to develop her craft, write more original music, and bring the power of music to her listeners. Annie joins us for the latest episode of the Passion and Perspective podcast. Annie, welcome to the Passion and Perspective podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. It's great to be here. Thank you. Annie, you were born in Sydney and, and raised in West Ryde. Yep. What role did music have on you as, as a young person? Um, Well, I grew up in a very musical family in the sense that my parents were passionate about music and always were playing classical music and going to concerts and that was a big part of their life. Not they weren't professional musicians, but there was always music playing. Um, So I suppose I was exposed to classical music particularly from quite a young age. Um, So that was kind of the context in which I I became interested and I had my own love of classical music um, Really, even before I got into rock music, I was into classical, so, and that stayed with me my whole life. Yeah. Was there a particular composer or artist that springs to mind that you remember from your childhood? Oh, it was mostly sort of 19th century stuff, the romantic composers, you know, Tchaikovsky and these kinds of people, Brahms, and <laughs> yeah, it was those kinds of composers that my parents used to love listening to, and Schubert particularly as well, he's a bit earlier, and Beethoven, you know, all the the main classical composers, but they were really into all of that and was always blaring. My father um, had a sort of a garage downstairs. We were in a two-storey house and the living area was all upstairs. And uh, he had all these sort of wires hooking up speakers. So he'd play, you know, have a record going up in the in the top part of the house and it would be going through the house and sort of be coming out the top but also down the bottom in the garage. So the whole house would sort of shake with this <laughs> particular whatever the music was. So I just remember this... You know, it's all surround sound kind of effect of, of this classical music. So it was, yeah, really important to me as a child. And as a kid, was there an understanding, I guess, for um, the the musical work behind it or was it more just some sounds and noises that you appreciated at, at a young age? Yeah, I mean, probably the latter. I think it was more just that sort of environment. I just had a love of that kind of sound, um, which very much... Um, laid the foundation for what was to come like we had a piano in the house my father plays the piano he's you know quite good for an amateur but he was definitely an amateur um but you know the piano was always there so I could sort of muck around on it and used to as a as a young child just one finger kind of you know (laughs) tunes try to work out how to play God Save the Queen and that sort of thing so I was sort of trying to work out things by ear as a quite a young child was there an element of I guess, freedom and adventure to your childhood? Were you able to go out and you know explore creativity, whether it be on the piano or outdoors? Oh yeah, it was a typical seventies upbringing that you know it was like go out and amuse yourselves and come home when the the street lights come on. You know, it was none of this helicopter parenting, which was wonderful. Um, and I wish there was more of that these days. And have um, you made a, a conscious choice with with your sons as well to make sure that you? Point them in a direction where they can explore their creativity, where Absolutely. they can be themselves. Absolutely, yeah. And um, in fact, that was one reason we moved out of Sydney up to the mountains was so they could have that kind of free, um, you know, exploratory uh, environment. You know, so I, I think good parenting is about providing a rich environment, um, lots of resources and lots of interesting, you know, books and craft materials or whatever, you know, backyard, you know, whatever, um, and then letting them go and letting them, you know, find free expression within that rather than micromanaging everything they do. And Annie, you first started music lessons at the age of eight. At that point, was it just piano that you were playing? Yeah, it was just piano. Um, I mean, I'd been, as I said, you know, plonking away with things and my parents thought it was time I had some formal instruction. So, yeah, so I went to lessons for like a year and um, I was actually too young. 
even though eight doesn't sound like too young for a child to learn piano. Um, I was, I think, fairly young for my age. Like I sort of still am, I hope. <laughs> it works for me these days. But it wasn't so good as a kid. <laughs> I was a bit behind. So, um, yeah, so I, I, didn't, I didn't get the fact that you have to actually practice every day and, and have a sort of a structure to the practice. And so I was not very good at it, actually. Um, it was a bit of a failure. And my parents weren't, you know, in the position to sort of sit with me and practice with me, like, you know, like you might have to with young kids. Um, so, yeah, it was, you know, I was kind of more or less left to myself. I had the lessons and, you know, I got a little way with it. But what I did get was sort of the basic things like the hand position and, you know, how to sort of apply the fingering to the piano. And I got some of the basic stuff down. Um, but, yeah, really after about a year, I stopped because um, I wasn't getting very... I sort of hit a wall, you know, like I wasn't going to... Because there's various hurdles when you're learning the piano, you know, you, you're kind of sailing all right for a bit and then you get to kind of, you got to jump a bit, you know, and it's, it's hard work. And I think I got to my first hurdle and I was like, nah. <laughs> so, it was it was a false start, but you picked it up at, again at the age of 11. Yeah. Once you picked it up again, what did it feel like when you were playing? Was there a sense of, um, I'm thinking of the word, was there a sense of the passion that came out of it when you were playing at the time? Oh, yeah, definitely I was more interested in it because what happened in between when I stopped the first time and when I started again um, is that, like I said, I'd had the sort of the basics and I could play with two hands. So, um, And because I had a, a good ear for music, I was able to work things out and you know by ear. And so I'd got to the point by the time I was 11 of working out pieces with, you know, fairly complex accompaniments with, you know, like two-handed sort of accompaniments and, you know, the, the whole bit. Um, but with no concept of how to read music, not much anyway, <laughs> very basic. But yeah, doing mostly it by ear and, and doing things with two hands. And so I think at that point when I was, you know, my pieces were getting more and more complex, my parents were like, okay, I think she's actually got something here. Maybe we'll give her another go at it. Um, so yes, when I went back at 11, it was much more, and I was, I had the maturity then as well to actually do the practice and understand what was required and yeah, so definitely I was a lot more passionate about it and I flew through um, really um, the first, especially the first few grades. I mean, I still had the hurdles and uh, I remember there was one point when I got to about third grade standard, it was, you know, one of the first sort of hurdles, sort of third to fourth grade and I was like, oh man, this is hard, you know, <laughs> it's really hard. And I'm only really still at the beginning, you know. And I remember asking my parents, could I stop learning now? I'm, I'm sort of sick of it. And they're like, nope. <laughs> and I was really like, oh, man. I was a little bit annoyed actually at the time, but um, of course I thank them for it because <laughs> they saw I had potential. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of passion there. Um, and you know, I continued with writing my own music, and yeah, I had a great piano teacher who encouraged that and was very, very much helped me, you know, with writing and yeah, being creative. And he was very into the musical, you know, expression and the phrasing. And um, so he got me playing musically. Yeah. You mentioned playing it by you at a quite mm. a young age. Mm. Do you relate that to being exposed to all that music, you know, 18th, 19th century at a young age? Oh, yeah, I think it all plays a part. I can't, you can't put these things in airtight containers, you know. I, I think definitely it would all have played a part. And the other thing I, I really credit my parents for, not just, you know, paying for all the lessons and encouraging me, because I was very proud of me, of course, you know, and they'd show me off to my... When they had dinner parties, I got plonked on the piano and, like, okay, you play all your pieces for us all. I had to impress everybody, which got annoying a bit, but, you know, they were very proud of me. Um, but another thing they did, um, which I'm very happy about, is that they would, I said that I mentioned that they went to a lot of concerts and they just ended up getting a third ticket for me and I ended up going along to the subscription stuff, you know, the orchestra and the Music of Eva concerts and this kind of thing from, you know, I suppose early teenager sort of age. Um, I went to a lot of things like regularly you know every month or two we were going to something whether it was recitals or chamber music or orchestral stuff so that was um yeah continued to inform uh, my music and I think it's it's really speaks to a really important principle which is when, you, when you're learning say you're learning a piece by Beethoven like if that piece of by Beethoven's the only Beethoven you know you're not really understanding what you're doing like you need a wider context of what you know, okay, so this is his piano music, what's his orchestral stuff like, or what's his chamber music like, or, you know, what's his violin music like, you know, and you have a, and when you're being exposed to that through concerts, you have a better understanding of what you're playing in the context of, of the pieces that you're playing. 
And I think that was a really important um, thing I got from being exposed to really good, high-quality live music. And did you have a desire at that time you're there at a concert to say, I want to make a career out of this, I want to be a professional musician? Yeah, I think I knew fairly early on. I had, when I was a young child, I thought I was going to be a brain surgeon. That was my sort of thing. I think I just said it because it sounded cool, but I don't think I really understood anything, that would, what it would take. But um, yeah, I guess I knew from fairly, you know, maybe year seven or year eight at high school that this is my thing and this is really the only thing I actually excelled at. I mean, I did lots of different things. I was playing netball and doing dance and so forth but the only thing I was actually really good at <laughs> was was the music so yeah it was sort of a no-brainer that that's the direction I was going. And throughout those school years what, what influence did your education have from a music sense? Were you able to embrace I guess the theory and the practice? because I know for a lot of musicians they just want to get get out there and play did you mm. embrace the, the theory side of things? Oh totally I loved it man I was just totally into music history and and um understanding the musicianship and yeah I loved all that like a um we didn't have a very good I did elective music from like year eight um and for the first couple of years our, our teacher wasn't that good but in year 10 I got a really good music teacher um and she just threw all this music history at us like what's the baroque period you know what years it basically encompasses who are the main composers what are the characteristics of it and same with the classical period the romantic period and 20th century and we just went through it all and I just lapped it up I just couldn't get enough you know loved it and I also did musicianship um you know as in music theory um sort of as a extracurricular thing um which I loved and I went through <laughs> really whizzed through that and I just you know I I couldn't get enough of every aspect actually you know so I wasn't yeah I was I was very much into the musicology not just the playing and through school did they provide the platform for you to to get out in front of people and, and, and show your, your craft? Yeah, yeah. I um, I mean, I was sort of the person who played the school song at every assembly, so <laughs> I guess that was one little duty I had early on. But definitely we had, um, you know, we'd have music performance evenings and stuff and whereas where all the people who did elective music would get up and play, you know, play pieces and various groups. And, you know, we had, uh, when I was in year 11, my, my teacher then made us all write a piece and all of those compositions got performed and yeah so we very much encouraged lots of performance evenings and um also you know we'd have like a language for like it was called the international evening I think it was all the languages and there was always a few musical items there which I'd sort of step up and do and you know we did school musicals and I inevitably was on the piano in the rehearsals <laughs> accompanying everybody <laughs> I was supposed to be up on stage learning the dance steps but I'd be <laughs> stuck at the piano <laughs> accompanying everybody um, yeah, so there were lots of opportunities. Um, there was a in year nine. There was a, a group of myself and three friends. We um, formed a little ensemble and we went in like a Stedford stuff and like won prizes and you know. So yeah, we did things early on, which was good. And at that age, were you getting more satisfaction out of writing or playing music? Oh, probably playing. I didn't do that much writing. I mean, I did a bit, you know, here and there, but the hours. I think I was, I was spending so much time like developing my abilities and you know the lessons were obviously ongoing and had exam I did like AMEB exams at the end of every year so you know I was always working towards a goal and had various pieces I had to learn and you know get through my practice for the week so that sort of dominated I think but definitely I was writing bits on the side and um, also developing my accompaniment skills um, which was great I was in this music class uh, my elective music class was I was at a co-ed public school, but for some reason the elective music class was all girls. So I think there was something about not having boys there meant we were very sort of uninhibited, <laughs> especially at the tender age of year nine or whatever. That's a fair call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we all just would sing, you know, everyone just loved to sing and, and um, I was the only, only sort of halfway decent piano player in the class. So, you know, my friends would bring in sheet music and say, I'll oh, play this one and, you know, it'd be sort of quite... Can be like six flats or something, and I think you know I wasn't actually I was only fourth grade piano or something. I wasn't that great to the point where I could sight read this music, but I, I would look at the chord at the top and think, okay, I can play a G flat chord, so I'd play that chord and I'd put a bass note in my left hand and away I'd go, and I'd just got to keep the time signature going, and they'd play the they'd sing the tune, and I just learnt how to sort of accompany by reading chords, um, which was such a useful skill, like because you don't actually need to read any of the notes, you just look at the chord symbol and. That's all you need. So, uh, 
it was very useful. So I really developed um, my ability to sort of read from a lead sheet um, quite early because of that. So I, I thank um, you know all my friends <laughs> for that at school. Yeah, it was a good skill. And outside of the 18th, 19th century, the classical music, what other influences did you have on your, your musical taste? Um, oh, well, I, I suppose, um, like most people my age, I got into top 40 sort of stuff and I, I had a big folder of sheet music of, you know, like, was, I don't know if it's, these days I suppose it's almost the online, but in that time you'd sort of go to a music shop and they had these single song sort of sheets you know like three or four pages just a loose leaf sort of thing and I just I had a whole heap of those like a 30 or 40 sort of songs so I'd sort of sit there and play through them and sing them at the top of my voice and you know so I had a lot of influences from that kind of music just that whatever the top 40 was in the you know we're talking early 80s I guess so yeah I was into all of that sort of stuff um and also, even as an even younger child, I really got into like heavy metal. Actually, as a especially that seventies stuff, like your, you know, your Deep Purple and <laughs> these kind of bands. You know, sort of British um, heavy metal bands from the seventies and you know Led Zeppelin in the eighties. You know, that sort of era. Um, Pink Floyd. You know, a lot of those from. I got into a lot of that music as well. Um, at that age, not so much Pink Floyd, they came a bit later, but particularly uh, Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple, I was really into when I was, you know, 10 years old, because that's when they were around and putting out their albums. Um, so I suppose that was, I, I don't know if that was an influence in the sense that it, it was reflected in the music that I played, but I certainly was into it and <laughs> listened to it a lot. So, But, you know, as I got older, I suppose particularly towards the end of high school and early uni, um, I started listening to a lot of sort of Wyndham Hill sort of label stuff, like what was called ambient music at the time. Um, and there was this great show on Triple J called Ambience that used to be on Sunday nights. I don't know if you... <laughs> we're going back <laughs> a while now, but I love that. That was like my favourite radio program because <laughs> it was all this great, like Brian Eno and, you know, George Winston and these sorts of, uh, you know, Keith Jarrett a bit, you know, that sort of, that type of style. Um was very influential, particularly George Winston and Keith Jarrett. It's very much into that, that sort of very laid back, lots of space, you know, very relaxing sort of meditative style of music. I really love that, and that was a real influence on the way I played, particularly like that did affect my way of playing. It's interesting you bring that up because we were speaking earlier, and you know, I mentioned that I've been listening to one of your, your songs, Friendship, mm. and it certainly gives off that that ambient vibe. Mm. Is that something you've continued, you've wanted to continue throughout your music, even today? Yeah, it's definitely sort of sat there the whole time. It's part of my style. Um, one thing I decided when I was, oh, particularly in my late 20s, I, I thought, you know, I've really got to embrace jazz more than I have to, like jazz pianists. And so I went on a, you know, I suppose I've been on a bit of a mission since then to educate myself in jazz because I really don't, you know, grew up, I was completely just like classically trained and, didn't really have any clue about how jazz worked in terms of playing it. I could read chords, but wasn't so good on all the more, ex, you know, more complex chord extensions, you know, flat nines and sharp fifths and sort of, I used to just ignore all that and just play the chords, the basic, you know, chord. Um, there was a hilarious thing one time when I was at uni, um, we had various, you know, seminar sort of options, sort of courses that we, we could take. And I decided to do one in jazz improvisation and uh we didn't really have that many lectures it was more a sort of a thing you had to go ahead and work out yourself and and I went and had a lesson from this quite a prominent at the time jazz Sydney jazz pianist called David Levy um and I went over to his place and I said well I've got to do this jazz improvisation uh you know next week or something whatever it was to pass this course can you please teach me how to jazz improvise because I have no idea <laughs> And it was like, really? Just in one lesson? I was like, yeah, that's all I can afford, sorry. Because <laughs> I was some totally broke uni student. And he just like nearly fell over backwards. He's like, I can't teach you how to do it in one lesson. I was like, well, you're going to have to. <laughs> and was it a success? Well, it was the most... I had two hours with him and it was the most fascinating two hours in my life at that point. It was amazing. Yeah, he was... He just really broke it down and... 
it was a success in the sense that I I got a, a foot in the door of how to do it, you know, and I got through the course so that my performance went okay. <laughs> so I, I understood enough after that lesson to get me going. Um, and that was, I suppose, the start of me always wanting to do that. And, and then, as I said, when I got to my sort of later 20s, I thought, okay, I've got to get more systematic about this. And I started just buying up CDs of, you know, Oscar Peterson and Fats Waller and, you know, all these great... Um, Dave Brubeck, you know, all the great sort of jazz pianists and now I've got quite a extensive uh, CD collection. Just I thought, I've just got to listen to this stuff and just get the sound of it in my head. And So I'd say these days it's uh, a bit of that sort of George Winston thing that was sort of the earlier influence, but there's a little bit more of a jazz sort of flavour to it. I still wouldn't call myself a jazz pianist per se, um, but there's definitely some jazz sort of colouring to what I do a bit more these days. Not, not in every piece, but in some pieces. This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. piano playing gigs for a number of years and yep. you've got the appreciation that not, not everyone has that um, has that fortune I guess and, and you've mm. worked hard to get there mm. do you recall the moment of you know what I can make something of this I can make a career and a livelihood out of this well look ever since I was at uni I've had professional gigs I had my first professional gig in 1987 um, when I was I think third year uni um, but yeah that was you know it's good money on you know thing is you don't have that many hours a week so it has to be a good hourly rate you know um but yeah definitely like this is the way I would like to make my money you know is by doing this uh so yes um early on that was always my sort of preferred kind of work you know I always said to myself I don't want to be like a high school music teacher I just want to you know be a performer and so avoided all the education sort of subjects you know so that I could just concentrate on the performing and you know I, I did fairly well with it I I had that gig at uni and I had a few others. Um, I lived overseas for a few years and, and had gigs. Um, I lived in Cambridge in England and had a few gigs there, some different bars and restaurants and things. So, you know, I've, I've played in a lot of different places and it's been interesting. Um, and the reason I appreciate having a, being able to hold down a gig is because so many venues that you play at, you know, like I'll have a quiet night, you know, like it's you book to play at 7 o'clock in the evening on a Saturday or whatever, and they'll ring you at 5 and say, oh, look, we've only got a few people booked in, don't come in tonight, you know. It's like, well, great, so I just don't make that money. It's too late to book anything else. So the reason I appreciate uh, holding down a job is because there's so many people that will just cancel you at the last minute. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, it's too late to book anything else. It's You know, you just lose that money. And so having an uh, employer that will actually let you come in every week, even if they're having a quiet night, is a, is a real, um, it's gold, you know. And I'm very lucky to have that type of gig employer at the moment. Yeah. Your tertiary studies, uh, piano, performance, diploma and a music degree, yeah. how did that help you and what were your kind of key takeouts from, from those studies? Well, the performance diploma was just like a high-level performance, like a, just a, like a piano exam, but like a really high-level one. Um, so... That was a really huge amount of work. It took me, you know, after I'd done sort of my eighth grade, which is already quite a high level, it was another two years after that before I was able to do this exam. It's called the Licentiate of the Trinity College of London. It's a quite a high, it's like the highest kind of piano exam you can do. Um, and, yeah, it was really tough, like very hard work um, to, to get that, like really four hours practice a day for two years. So, like, it's a lot of work you know um so getting that was a real I just felt like okay I've really achieved a certain level um but the biggest thing for that was okay now I can stop <laughs> I could stop going to lessons and stop practicing other people's music and it was right at the point of uni um I was at my second year of uni when I did that exam um 
and I also stopped doing performance at uni too and switched to composition for my third year. That, that was an option to do that. You could do the performance for three years or composition for three years or you could do a combination. So after the two years of performance and the year I did my LTCL, I was able to stop lessons. Finally, I'd been doing lessons for like 11 years, you know, like a long time and practicing. And especially when you're practicing that much every day, just to get some Mozart or something just perfect, you know. And this is like, okay, really, that's all there is to it. I can play this Mozart perfectly, but, you know, I was just sick of playing other people's music and, and I thought I really do want to work on my own stuff. And that was, I suppose it drove that, um, that sort of pushed me into composition, you know, um, having to get up to that level. The music degree itself, it was a Bachelor of Music at Sydney Uni. Um, and it was a great course. It was very, it was very strong on musicology um, and not so strong on the performance. It had performance, of course, subjects, but compared to the, say, the conservatorium course, which was another, a different BMUS course, um, it was much more theoretical, which I loved because I was totally into like music history and, um, you know, analysis and all these sorts of things. I loved all that kind of nitty gritty sort of getting inside the music and, you know, seeing how it's constructed. And so I've always loved that. So it really suited me down to the ground. And it also had a strong Baroque performance practice component. Um, Winsome Evans, who um, many of your listeners might know, she um, runs the Renaissance Players and she was one of the my lecturers um, at the uni. And she's really big on sort of early music and, and so the course itself had a strong emphasis on early music. And by early I mean sort of Baroque, sort of before, say, early 1700s and, and earlier, so back into the medieval time, through the Renaissance and back into medieval. So, uh, and there was a big emphasis on the right kind of performance practice for that and how you do your trills and how you do this and that. And I had a harpsichord at home, which is an early keyboard instrument. So I had been into early music for particularly since about year 10 in high school. And my father built this harpsichord when I was in year 11. And so I had it at home and I was really into sort of baroque music and you know proper playing it on proper period instruments and all this sort of thing so that was a big thing for me and and Sydney Uni was had a very strong emphasis on that so the the theoretical thing plus the strong baroque performance practice component was what attracted me to that course rather than the con to me the con sort of just churned out like orchestral performers and stuff (laughs) you know I just sort of I don't know I had a few issues with the con because I'd been doing my lessons there for a while and I didn't really want to go there so Sydney Uni suited me really nicely. It, it was a good course, yeah. It was very deliberate thought from you, a very conscious decision to say, I want to I want to get some key learnings out of this. I want to learn about the Baroque. I want to mm, learn about mm, the music history. Mm, mm. Yeah. I'd done, um, as part of my HSC, um, I did like three-unit music, which is like music extension to these days. Um, and you had to do a big sort of history sort of research topic. And I did mine on vocal music before Bach. So I just basically explored all the the rise of sort of vocal music from medieval, from sort of basically, you know, Gregorian chants through to sort of four-part harmonies of, you know. So that whole sort of period I just think is really fascinating. And um, and there was a, and we did all that again when I got to uni. I was just like, oh, I love this. <laughs> it was so great to do it again with a you know proper university lecturers, and I already had a good amount of knowledge in it, and I just loved all that. And then we went right through, obviously, in the second and third years, we went into the later periods. Um, but yeah, it was just like a lot of depth and in in the approach to the music history, and very careful at like analysis of the you know harmonic language and this sort of thing. And I just love all that stuff. It was very. Up, right up my tree, you know. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel it's key for a musician of, of any discipline to have that strong respect and understanding for both the musicians that have come before them, but also the history of music itself? Well, if you want to understand what you're doing, for sure. And you know, look, there's lots of good musicians that um, will play from a more intuitive kind of place, um, and they don't maybe understand the relationships between chords and things in the same way that I might with my sort of you know learning but that doesn't mean they're not good musicians and don't feel it you know so I don't want to be judgmental and say everyone has to do this you know but that's just the route that I went through because I was just totally into it and I couldn't get enough of you know music theory because <laughs> I'm, I'm a nerd <laughs> um, but yeah like there's lots of places to to lots of roads to becoming a good musician and, and they don't all have to go that way but for me um yeah it definitely is 
you know, when I'm playing something, I'm thinking about the relationships between the chords. And when I listen to something, I'm thinking about the relationships between the chords and thinking, oh, he's gone out of the, you know, he's, you know, like I think about the cycle of fifths and how it's, you know, everything in that's relating to each other and how what I'm listening to, how that's moving around that. And so it's just the whole, my whole approach of playing and listening. But not everyone has that and not everyone needs that to make music that's beautiful, you know. There's lots of ways to do it. And you referred to your time uh, overseas in, in England. Hmm. How, how did that help both your personal growth but also your musical growth as well? Um, well, personally, it was really, you know, it's that kind of time of your life when you're in your early 20s where you like to sort of get away from your parents and your culture and, you know, find yourself and actually grow up. And So, you know, in that sense, I followed a well-trodden road that a lot of young people do Aussies especially you know there used to be this whole thing back in my parents generation of returning to the motherland you know like at some point you know you had to sort of go to in, back to England you know so was, I suppose maybe a little bit of that I actually lived in Vienna for nine months before I went to England um yeah and just being just in Europe and in England it was just a, a great experience it was a great time to grow up and you know just leave the sort of clutches of home and the safety of my culture that I knew and just experienced you know how people other people do things and yeah so it was it was very important personally um musically I suppose I just continued to write and continued to um you know obviously play different gigs and um I had a job I got a job at a restaurant in in Cambridge that was a jazz venue. I was like, oh shit! <laughs> I just like got the job. I thought, oh, I better learn. Something. Here comes the improvisation again, <laughs> yeah. right? Oh boy! And um, a friend of mine um, who was a member of the uni got went to the library and got out this book. It was like hundred hits from the thirties or something like that. And I just photocopied the whole book and just just basically plonked away through on these pieces and you know, kind of to the novice would sound just right you know I went with the mood of the place but um I really didn't I was really flying by the seat of my pants I, I didn't really know what I was doing but that was I suppose that was a really good um you know had to sort of pull myself up to a certain you know sound that I wasn't really used to playing so that was good um, I got better at reading some of those more complex jazz chords and just uh, had to you know I was just reading through these pieces and trying to make it sound the right kind of sound for the venue, you know. Um, so that, that was a, a, a big learning experience. I spent some time um, on an island in Scotland called Iona where there's a like an ecumenical Christian community and I was doing a lot of the music work there. Um, and that was also, that was sort of exposed me to different kinds of music as well and, and being able to, you know, do some of my soft ambient kind of stuff during, you know, the communion part of the service or whatever and had lots of opportunities there to, to you know, play my music. In fact, one time they made me, um, they, we had a concert. I actually did a concert because I'd, you know, done a few things. They said, oh, you should just do a whole concert just on your own, you know, rather than just being in the service, you know. Um, and I think it was, there was a time, I think there had been a big earthquake in Iran or something. We did like this fundraiser and everyone had to pay like a pound to get in and we raised quite a few hundred dollars actually, which was nice and, yeah, we sort of put out the word and a lot of people in the community came and, um, yeah, so, you know, I did a few things like that as well. I was at, a, um, when I was living in Austria, I was at this um, kind of conference centre that I was, I was attending this um, Christian conference there and and I'd been playing the music for, you know, some of the singing and stuff. And one night um, we were all just sort of chilling out in the common sort of area and these two guys came up and picked me up. They literally picked me up and carried me to this other part of the place where we were staying, the centre, where there was a piano. <laughs> it sort of sat me on the piano stool and all these people followed. It was like this Pied Piper thing. And there must have been about, I don't know, 100 people in this room or something. And they said, OK, you're going to sit here and play for us for the next <laughs> two hours or something. And people going can you play this can you play that and I just sort of said well you tell me what to play and I'll play it you know so it was just a hilarious thing where I got to just people say oh do you know the uh Tchaikovsky piano concert <laughs> I said oh, I know the first bit and you know and I'd plonk it out and, and I'd stop when I didn't know anymore 
oh, can you play this and that? And anyway, we just had this amazing time. It was just it's this very special memory I have of, you know, people just really desiring to hear it and, and realising how important music is to people and, you know, how much hearing a really good piano player means to them. And, you know, I thought, actually, I've got something special here, you know. And generally speaking, do you feed off the energy of crowds, no matter how big or small? Is there a sense of connection you get from that? Totally, totally. It's very important, yeah. Um, it's interesting because the two places I play regularly now is the Hydro Majestic, which is a massive dining room and can fit like 400 people. And the other place is Echo's Restaurant, which is a much more intimate um, It's a restaurant that's sort of spread over a few different rooms, but the whole sort of capacity is about 70 people. But there's this lovely sort of spot where there's the piano and there's this like 360 fireplace and lounges all around it and the piano's kind of on one side of it. And it's really intimate, you know, like compared to the hydro, like you'd sort of think, oh, that'd be the better venue because it's big and, you know, it's famous and, you know. Um, But Echoes in, in a way is... I like it more because the people are right there and, and they're just loving what I'm doing and they're looking at the fire, especially in the winter. It's all very cosy and lovely and, you know, and they give me requests and that they're hearing me during their dinner and after dinner they'll come and sit on the couch and, listen, you know, and they can tell, like, they, they said, oh, we've been just listening to it. It's been great and we want to come and listen to you for a bit and, you know, so it, it's much more intimate and I just sort of get that energy, you know. If I know that people are really actively listening and really enjoying it, it, it inspires me to sort of, you know, lift it a bit, you know, I, I, you know, perform better actually. And if I think that nobody's listening to me, like sometimes if there's like a wedding and everyone's just a bunch of drunks or yelling at the top of their voices and no one's, I'm just like, can barely hear me in the background. It's just not fun. You know, I don't even enjoy playing. It's, it's like, I'm just pale wallpaper at best, you know, like, but when people are actively listening and I can tell they're really enjoying it, it's, yeah, definitely feeds, feeds the inspiration. So yeah, there's an energy with live music that's, yeah, can't be compared to anything. And you, you, as you mentioned, you've played at some of these iconic places locally. Mm. Is there a place either in Sydney or, or globally that is on kind of the wish list? You, you know, you, you think of some musicians who want to play at the Historia or a cricketer who wants to play at the Sydney Cricket Ground. Mm. Is there kind of like that one place where you, you think, oh, I would love to, to have a gig there? Uh, I haven't really thought about it in those sort of terms. I mean, I've when I was at school, I played at the Opera House a few times as part of some schools concerts, and that was pretty cool. Um, but no, I haven't really thought about. I suppose uh, you know, I mean, the Royal Albert Hall or something. <laughs> you know, but that's sort of you know probably out of my league, really. I mean, I'm not that kind of. I'm not like a concert pianist, you know. I mean, I'm sort of getting up towards that level of ability, but you know, I don't. It's not, I'm not the kind of pianist that's going to fill stadiums or anything, you know, or concert halls. So I suppose it's not really the way I think about it. It's more developing my craft. And um, my focus is more, I guess, on being published and um, recording. And I'd love my music to be used in screen. And, you know, that's sort of more the, the kind of context in, that I'm kind of aiming for rather than a particular venue. Yeah. It's probably a lot more gratifying and satisfying that way right yeah well I've just always been interested in the relationship between visuals and music and like the way music's used in film and tv and well for whatever visuals you know Um, and that's something I've just wanted to do for like forever I mean I'm not sure if I'll ever get there with that but that's that's a goal for sure Annie with the rise of tech and and streaming you know your music's on iTunes and YouTube Mm. Do you feel that technology has helped or hindered your your pathway as a musician? I definitely helped, yeah. Particularly during COVID when I was had no gigs, like everything was cancelled and I was just at home, you know, so I was like, I've got to do something. So I got onto Facebook. I mean, I was planned to get on, I had gotten onto Facebook earlier in the year anyway because I've only recently moved back to the mountains and I'm establishing my teaching studio and everything, so I but I'll get on Facebook, you know, that's because everyone's going, oh, you've got to be on Facebook for your business. and But, you know, I didn't really know what to do with it once I was on it. <laughs> so so it took me a little while. But then when COVID happened, I, I thought, oh, well, this is the perfect thing. You know, I'll put some videos on and on my Facebook. And now, you know, I've got quite a few people who like my page and this type of thing. So once I've started putting my music onto it. So, yeah, that's, if 
something that's come out of COVID is that's forced me sort of to contend with um, my music online, which I hadn't really ever had to do before. Yeah. Nerdy, what is it about music that you love? Oh gosh, the fact that it can change your emotional state, and there's very few things that can just do that so efficiently. Um, you know, if you're feeling pumped up, you can put on some like heavy kind of music, and it gets you going, yeah, you know. And or if you're stressed, you can put on something relaxing, and that just sort of like calms you down. You know, um, the fact that it just affects our brains, like literally, you know can cause good, you know, chemicals, stress chemicals to be overcome with, you know, dopamine or whatever, you know, the relaxing, happy chemicals, you know, it's literally can make this chemical warfare happen inside you and change your mood. Like, like what else can do that so efficiently, you know? So <clears throat> I feel very privileged to uh, be one of the people who have that tool and that ability to do that and be able to play something and then see someone look around when I'm done and somebody's sitting over there crying is like, oh my God, I just made that person cry. Like, how cool is that <laughs> to be able to do that? Like, there's very few things that will do that. I mean, music's like one of the only things. I mean, people might cry at a, you know, a piece of art or something, but that's much rarer. Um, but lots of people cry at music. And you can say, well, people cry at films, but they, they're not they're normally going to cry in films if there's no music there. Like, it's the music that is actually the thing mm. that's supporting the emotional thing that's going to be what makes you cry you know so yeah so the thing I love about music is its ability to change emotional state it's an extremely powerful tool um, which is why it's everywhere of course it's why you go into a shop and there's nice music playing and makes you happy and you know it's like that's or the reason why it's so ubiquitous is because it makes you know people can use it to change you and you've got to be careful of it of course because that's you can be influenced to do things that you shouldn't do or whatever <laughs> because the music's right. Um, but, yeah, I, I certainly think it's a really powerful tool and I'm very fortunate to be one of the ones who gets to wield it, I suppose. <laughs> and does your inspiration when writing music come from your personal experiences or is it from your interpretation of the world? Um... It depends. Like sometimes I write things in response to an image. Um, sometimes I just write things in res like actually it's just the music itself. I think, well, what if I tried this interval and this interval or this chord to this chord or I build my chord progression through this particular set of intervals. And it's actually really about the music and experimenting with the, the tools of the notes. And then I get a whole piece and I think, okay, now what am I going to call it? <laughs> I'll call it like prelude number one or... <laughs> some really boring thing like that um whereas a lot of composers will um you know they'll say you know pixies dancing on the the rocks or you know they've got some particular image and they'll write something around that image um i generally would write it from within the music and then just slap some random <laughs> like literally i go through the dictionary and think oh that's a nice word i'll call it that because <laughs> my working title is something like you know a flat major fourth or B minor triplets or <laughs> something. But that's how I call my pieces, you know, by the, just the musical elements of it. So, um, But I did something interesting today. I was um, sitting in my studio at my piano and there was a reflection of water on the ceiling. I have a big bucket of water outside the door because my, <laughs> my gutters are leaking and it was dripping into this bucket and the sun was shining and reflecting it back up to the ceiling just right above where I was. And it was kind of calm. It was a little bit... Um, you know, the wobbly sort of image, and then a drip would come and the whole image would sort of, you know, fly around and then it would settle again and then another drip would come. I thought, what if I actually just wrote, you know, I sat here and improvised according to what's happening visually with this particular little weird reflection on the ceiling. So I got my phone and hit record and did that. And so I still have to go through it and see if it's worth anything, but that was something I've never done before, so... Inspiration from everywhere. Yeah, like you, you, there's no limit. You can just take it from whatever. Um, but I have to say, more often than not, it's just from within the music itself. I think, oh, what about if I use this interval and then this chord and or I superimpose this, you know, get this little sort of melody going and then I'll change the chords underneath the same little melody. Or, yeah, so it, it's, it tends to be more from a musical point of view rather than a visual thing, but I, I can respond visually to things. I, I 
think it would be great to improvise music to a movie, for example, like like they used to do back in the silent movie days, you know. Like I can do that sort of thing. I used to play for ballet, and um, this is for Rosalind. Um, she has Rosa Tutu Studios she has in Springwood. Um, and she used to do these great things with the, the little kids. And like at the end of the class, they'd always do some creative free dance kind of thing. And she'd make up some story. And we're, you know, we're witches and we're getting all these things and putting them in the pot. And then we're dancing around the pot. And, you know, she'd make up all these whole stories. And I just had to improvise the music to it. You know, it was really fun. Like I love doing that, you know. So if I do have a specific story to be able to improvise the music around it, it's lots of fun. I can do that. And But that don't, doesn't tend to be the way I write. I tend to just write from within the music, to be honest. And are there occasions where you get, say, 90% through a piece of work and you say, you know, stuff it, scrunch it up onto the next one because you're just not feeling it? Or do you, do you leave it and you come back another time and go again? Yeah, I would tend to leave it and come back. And sometimes I think, oh, yeah, this really is just shit. You know, it's not worth pursuing this. Um, yeah, sometimes I'm just improvising because I often just record my improvisations and, and then from that I think, actually, well, this bit from this part to this part was pretty good. I might use that um, and build a piece around that, you know, because um, quite often good things come out of improvisations, but sometimes I just think, oh, this is just meandering crap, you know, it's not really, there's nothing in here that's worth it, and I'll just delete it, you know. Yeah, but generally if I'm literally writing it down, it's because I've already decided that it's worth it, you know. Sometimes, I don't know, <laughs> I, I bother to notate the whole thing, and then I think, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I was just, <laughs> wasn't, yeah, I might not feel it. And you mentioned that occasionally you might look across the room and, and someone after one of your pieces is, is crying or maybe they're laughing or mm. um, that there's that emotional connection. Do you like to prescribe the journey for the listener or do you like them to form their own interpretation in their mind? Uh, generally they, they're bringing their own interpretation because in my gigs I'm generally playing songs um, that they might know already because I sort of look at their general age and I think, okay, what? Well, they're in their 50s, that means they'd probably really go for songs from the 80s, you know. <laughs> you sort of think, what were, what was it when they were growing, you know, when they were teenagers in their 20s, it's just everyone's, everyone's music all time, you know. The way that's where you sort of, where you hook into music. And um, so generally the things from you, when you're younger are the things that sort of are your, your songs, you know. So I kind of base it a lot on that. And Or if they say, oh, I love Elton John, you know, I think, okay, so I'll play a few Elton Johns, you know, really nicely for them. Um, but yeah sometimes it's just um, it's random you know like I'll just be playing something of my own and someone will, someone will say that's just so beautiful now I just was so loving that you know and it just relates to them on a, a much more ethereal sort of level not, not so much just you know the hits from their childhood or whatever yeah but generally they would bring their own feelings to it I think because we all feel music in a different way you know what sounds good to one person is going to give someone else a different feeling you know it's not gonna it's not to me not for me to prescribe that and so do you approach a gig with a a prescribed set list or do you keep your options open and base off what the the crowd or the audience is giving you or like you said their age you might Mm -hmm. go down one path of Mm -hmm. songs yeah yeah i mean obviously at a restaurant you're going to have a big mix of ages um but you know if i don't see any teenage girls anywhere I'm not going to play Billie Eilish you know for example <laughs> or if it's all old people I'll kind of stick it to you know nothing nothing later than 1970 or, you know or whatever yeah so I do sort of riff a bit off the, the age group that's there uh, I just have a really large repertoire like hundreds of pieces and and I'm always building that too I'm always learning new stuff like I try to add something new every month or two you know they have a few new pieces that get thrown in there um so yeah I just you know just choose from that and I don't really know from one piece to the next what I'm going to play next you know like maybe when I'm coming to the end of something I think oh what will I play next and I'll have it ready in my mind when I finish the one but more often than not I'll just finish it and think okay now what and I'll have a look around and think I'll play something for that person over there (laughs) and then think oh I'll play something for that person
This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. Oh, look, it's, if you've got the right student, it's the most satisfying thing. It's just a wonderful thing when you've got someone who's really keen and talented and they do their practice. It's just such a great thing to do. Um, conversely, if you get someone who's not talented or just not even, they just don't get it, you know, um, or they don't practice. Like you get um, Sometimes you get people who are very musically talented, but they won't practice. Um, and that's really frustrating because you think, oh, you could be going so much faster and we could be doing so much more if you just put the time in, you know. And um, So it's it's a sort of a job that's has a high potential for being frustrating because, you know, it's having that combination of someone being talented and that they do their work and, they're, you know, really keen. Having all those um, elements in place is a rare thing. So, you know, it doesn't... <laughs> Um, but you know, it's it's really fun. Like if you get a, a like a little kid who's a beginner, um, and they've got you know sort of committed parents, and you know they're going to help them, and you're going to be with them for a few years. That can be a really good thing. Like seeing a student, you know, I've had some students I've taken from beginners right up to seventh, eighth grade, and that's a great thing to see them grow. You know, you grow with them, and you see them grow up from little kids to teenagers and up into senior high school or whatever and you know you teach them for 10 years and it's you know you develop a real relationship with them and think oh you know it's sort of I'm the one to <laughs> that got them there you know in, in terms of their piano and you know it's it's a lovely thing um if you can have that sort of relationship yeah and Annie, you first moved to the Blue Mountains 20 years ago and then again last year you moved mm. back to the mountains what is it about the area that you love Oh, well, it's just the fresh air. Like when I was a child, you know, you, you do your school excursion to the Three Sisters and stuff. I thought, oh, I love it up here. This is beautiful. This, You just know when you get off the train and you smell the air, it's just like qualitatively different to Sydney, you know, and it's just cool. And I've always preferred cooler weather too. Like I always love the winter in Sydney and sort of like suffer through the summer and I'll wait till the weather goes cold again, you know. So I was much more into cool weather Um yeah, so, and I just love the freshness of the air. Um, and I always sort of thought I'd be lo- I'd love to live up there, you know, when I was growing up. I thought, oh, one of these days. And, and then it just sort of came the right time in um, my life with um, my husband when we had two young kids. And we were in a flat in the inner city, and we always liked the inner city. We always want to be right in the middle of it or right out of the city, you know, not sort of suburban types really, <laughs> sort of inner city or rural. <laughs> and uh, we were living in the inner city in a, you know, two-bedroom apartment and paying through the teeth for it. And it's just that uh, we had two young kids, like they were four and almost two, and thought, well, let's just, let's just do this. My husband wasn't enjoying his job and we thought, look, let's just have a, a life change, you know. So we just packed up and moved to Katoomba and <laughs> just got a house with a yard for like $100 less than what we were paying in rent for a little apartment in Sydney. And so it was just like a no-brainer, you know. The air quality was lovely and we actually had a yard. We could send the kids out to play, you know, because we had nowhere where you could just say to the kids, go outside and play, you know. You can't do that in an apartment. You've actually got to go with them to the park or whatever. And we just, you know, we did that a lot. But it's not the same of them just having their own backyard, you know, where they can have their toys and whatever. So, yeah, we... We moved in 2000, um, right after the Olympics finished, actually. <laughs> it was the way we, we combated the post-Olympic blues was <laughs> we moved to Katoomba. And, uh, yeah, just loved it and stayed in the Upper Mountains for like seven years and eventually bought a house in Lithgow and where my children did their sort of later, high, uh, later primary and all their high schooling. And finally when we they finished high school, we just... Um, yeah, we were. I'd gotten a job in Sydney, and I eventually succumbed and did my dip ed and became a high school music teacher after twenty years of private teaching. Um, so I, I did that for a, a little bit up there. Like I worked at Oberon and Bathurst, and 
did a bit in Lithgow itself. Um, I worked at Blue Mountains Grammar for a bit. Uh, but eventually I got a full-time job in Sydney um, and worked down there for five years. So, And then my younger son finished his HSC in Lithgow and after that we just moved back to Sydney because my, both my sons were either working or studying in Sydney and my husband was working down there. I, had, I was working down there so there was no reason for us to be in Lithgow. So yeah, we sold up Lithgow and moved to Sydney and yeah, I just um, always thought I'd move back to the mountains at some point. And um, the opportunity arose at the end of last year. I decided I'd had enough high school music teaching. I thought, okay, I did that for a bit. That was good. Now I'm done. <laughs> you can only teach kids who don't want to learn for so long, you know. And, um, yeah, so I came back last end of last year. And, Annie, over the years, have you felt the pressure, either internally or externally, to get a, a normal career? And I use normal in inverted mm. commas. that kind of nine to five? Oh, yeah, and I have, in fact, had... Um, a few times had you know I did conference management for a few years back in the 90s when my first around the time my first son was born just before that like in my early sort of I guess early to mid 90s I did that for about four years um that was all right you know but um yeah I just at the end of the day I thought you know music's my thing and I can do other things and I've done you know admin work so yeah, I've done normal work, you mm. know, but and it's okay. There's something nice and steady about it, you know. It's just very routine, and you get up and go to bed at the same time, and you know you're going to have the money in your bank at the end of the fortnight, and you know there's something very good about that. Um, and I don't want to, you know, I think anyone who's got that situation should be happy because there's there's something very secure about that. But I just knew that music was. Um, was my thing. And I suppose being a high school music teacher is a bit like having a normal job mm. in a way. Um, but yeah, I always just need my gigs, you know. I, I could never live without them. Just they're very much part of me and part of my self-expression and yeah, I always need them. So it's, it's actually quite fun to give up the normal job because I've been doing high school music teaching for the last like 10 years. So being able to stop that and go back to different kinds of ways of earning money um, has been really good and sort of freeing. It's been liberating for you? Yeah, totally, totally. Mind you, COVID happened right as I was starting in that journey, so that was kind of bad timing. But now that it's, we're coming out of it, I'm hoping I can get back into, you know, building some student base and all that sort of thing, yeah. And, Annie, do you believe in life that we as, as people that we find ourselves or that we create ourselves and what I mean by that is do you feel that the path is laid out for us or that we have to make the decisions each and every day to shape where our life goes I think it's a combination I think primarily we make it for ourselves but I think also there's elements of luck and who you know and you know who your contacts are you know because I think you know like when I listen to some you know, shows on TV, and I think, I could write that kind of music, you know, like, why why am I not getting paid to have written that music? It's exactly the kind of stuff I write, and I think, well, it's because I don't have the contacts, you know, so, um, but you can also make contacts, um, you know, and so trying to meet people and join, you know, associations or, you know, whatever, different groups that involve themselves in music and, you know, industry sort of associations and things, like, you can definitely get yourself involved, and meet people, um, and that's sort of what I'm in the process of trying to do now, is get myself known, and this is why Facebook's been really good, to get my stuff out there. Um, and I'm hoping, you know, I always sort of wish someone will come into one of my gigs and go, you're the perfect person for, you know, whatever. <laughs> like, here's a record deal, you know, <laughs> or whatever. But, you know, I've been doing it a long time and it's never happened, so I think, you know, that's a bit of a faint hope it would be ridiculous if that happened actually so I think more that you need to sort of make your own your own way but yes definitely luck and you know who you know and it's, it's got a lot to do with it I think and I think anyone who's really successful will tell you you know I got lucky with you know because this person I knew who knew someone else or you know I got pulled in because the guitarist missed his plane and you know you know there's always these sort of stories that you hear how people sort of got their break you know it's because something else happened that allowed them to step up and those sliding doors moments right yeah that's it so um i think there's a, a strong element of that too and if you've taken the time 
or do take the time to reflect on what has been a pretty incredible past few decades of, of, of living your passion? Yeah, I do. Um, look, there's been a lot of tough times in it as well, I have to say, because um, you don't make a lot of money as a musician. Um, so I've really felt that I've kind of lived pay period to pay period. And it's part of the reason I became a high school music teacher is because it was a more steady income. And that's just tough when you're relying on students all the time or playing and you just don't earn that much, you know. So, you know, it's... Um, I won't say it's been easy, but um, definitely I feel very privileged to have had the same gig or, you know, gigs for my whole adult life pretty much. Um, and that's, you know, a rare thing. And there's a lot of musicians who don't get very many gigs, so I'm very, very grateful for that. And uh, grateful to the people who have, you know, trusted me to keep doing it and haven't gotten rid of me. Because <laughs> it's definitely, you know, you improve the more the, the gigs you do, the better you get at your craft, so... Yeah, so I'm very grateful for what I've got, um, but I, I would also say it's it's been tough, you know, it's not just easy and I don't feel like I've had a smooth sailing ride or anything. Yeah. What advice would you have for musicians or, or anyone, really, just about getting started in their passion, in their the area that they really get that liberating feeling from? How, how do they go about just getting things moving and getting it started? Well, I think building your um your skills is really important so if you're a musician like practice you know is the most important thing you can do um, listen to a lot of different musicians go to a lot of live shows support other musicians I think there's a lot of good karma in that as well um, as well as it just informs your own listening sort of world you know like the more you listen to the more you it's like you're a sponge you know you just pull in all your influences from the more you listen to um, so definitely just working on your craft and uh, building your own skill set is really important. Um, and I, I think I would say try to get an online presence and, you know, try to meet people that might be able to help you. And Yeah, but I don't know if I'm even the best person to ask advice for because I'm, <laughs> I'm not really, like, hugely successful or anything. I feel like I'm really in a way at the beginning and needing to... You know, I'm still at the bottom of the ladder in a way, or a little bit up, but not too far. Success is subjective anyway. I think well, you've had a pretty yes. successful career, I'd say. Oh, look, in terms of have, being able to have regular gigs, yes. But um, in terms of making millions, no. <laughs> I'm sure that's overrated as well. <laughs> and as you said, it's been a recent move back to the Blue Mountains. And mm. you know, last year you re released the album Walking to Here. Mm. What does the next 12 months look like for you, Annie? Um, well, I want to focus more on writing. Um, I've actually just this past week had some really good news, which is that um, three pieces that I submitted to a publisher are being picked up and they're going to publish them. So that's really exciting. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, um, it's Awirapang is the publisher for that, which is a large sort of um, publisher of classical Australian music, like they're very much Australian-focused. They support Australian composers. Um I would really love to have an opportunity to write music for a film. Um, I don't imagine I'd get paid for it, but even if it was just a student film or something, I'd really like the opportunity to do that because that's something I have a really big desire to do. But it's a very, very competitive um, industry and the industry in Australia is not very big and there's already a lot of people out there who are a lot better at it than I am who have been doing it for longer and you know, I don't expect that I would handed a feature film or anything but even if I could just do a sort of a short student film or something that's something I'd really like to do so that's something I'm trying to pursue and make some contacts and contacts and film schools and things like that and say you've got students who need and you know some background music so that's something I'd like to do I'd like to focus more on um, like continue to write and get some other things published um, I would like to continue to um, build my online sort of presence um probably I should do like a Spotify account and <laughs> that sort of thing um yeah so I, I need to I've only really just got Facebook and a YouTube channel at the moment so well I have a website um but yeah maybe just getting myself onto more platforms I think is probably something I should be doing um just in terms of money earning I need to build a bunch of students and get my studio up and running at home um but yeah, I've got um, 
I've got a studio now, which has, means I actually have a computer and, you know, a keyboard and lots of sounds and I can, you know, do multi-track sort of recording. So I'm doing a little bit more of that and, yeah, I'd like to maybe put out an album of that stuff because I've got quite a few pieces of that now. It's been lots of fun. Yeah. And before we do wrap up, how do people find out more about yourself and the work you've done uh, through your website, social media, iTunes? What's the best way to, yeah. to find that? Well, my um, my website is annieburbankpiano.com.au um, and my YouTube channel is Annie Burbank Piano. Um, so that's probably the best two places. And my Facebook page is Annie Burbank Music, so not piano, music. So it's a bit confusing. <laughs> but, um, so Annie Burbank Music is the Facebook um, but if anyone is in like the Lower Mountains Discussion Group um, Facebook group or the Falkenbridge Neighbours, which is my suburb, um, and I'm also on the Blue Mountains Virtual Festival um, Facebook page, that was sort of set up to give a uh, platform for people who got cancelled from Winter Magic, um, but then they just opened it up to any Blue Mountains musicians who had lost work because of COVID. So I got on there and I've got a few videos there as well. Um, but yeah, my YouTube channel, I've got lots of videos, um, pretty much everything I've ever recorded, I've put there, So and the same on my um, my face, um, my website. So yeah, that's probably the best places. Um, and on those, there's my email and stuff. If people want to actually contact me, you can find that on my website. Annie, a huge, huge thank you for an open and honest conversation. And mm. uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Passion and Perspective podcast and wishing you all the best. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been a real pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to tell you about myself and about my music. And I hope everyone enjoys the music too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and proudly presented by The Western Weekender.